You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. There was a, a scientist who once said, my findings are meaningless if they are taken out of context. My findings are meaningless if taken out of context. And the media reported it by saying, scientist claims findings are meaningless. <laughs> Think about it. Yeah. You seen that? where you see somebody says something and they take it out of context and it gets reported. Context, context, context. We know that context matters. And today, one of the things we're gonna be really drilling in on is how to understand the Bible in its context. Oftentimes, we come to the Bible like some of the media today comes to their job, which is I need to just gather some information Hopefully it's the right information, but it's close enough, and so I'm going to present a conclusion um, based on maybe I have the right information, maybe I don't. We see this happening all the time. For example, I don't know if you saw yesterday, Tom Brady is definitely retiring. Until a little bit later, his father and the Buccaneers both said he has not decided if he's retiring. And then the sources told the ESPN again, no, he's definitely retiring. The lead story on ESPN was all about Tom Brady, all about his retirement. Um, and this morning, I looked, by the way, and he is definitely 100% retiring, possibly not sure. That's where things are. Yeah. But if you look, you can see headlines that say they're all talking about his career. And it's, I want to get through this quickly. I want to be first, and hopefully we're going to be Right. And oftentimes when we come to the Bible, we can come to it, like in my skepticism, some of the media does anyway, to say, let's get pretty close and, um, and we'll probably be right, but we've got to be the one that breaks the story. We've got to get there first. And often when we look at the Bible, we do the same thing. I think I'm close enough. I think I can draw a conclusion from this. And so I'll just draw this conclusion and get on with my day. Well, instead of thinking that we should approach this as though it were the media, we should think we're approaching it like a good detective. When we look at the scriptures, we should look like a good detective. What does a good detective do? A good detective looks and makes sure he's got all his ducks in a row. That he looks and says, I, I don't want to have some bias as to what, who, who did this or didn't do it or what happened. I want to just find the information and then it will slowly and methodically, it'll lead up to a conclusion. When we look at the Bible, we do approach it more like the media than a detective. And I want to encourage you today. We're going to talk about reading the Bible in its original context. And I'm going to tell you, this is, this is a, um, a whole seminary course. This is, um, this is weeks and weeks and weeks. This is a semester of seminary training. And I'm not going to do that entire thing, obviously, here today. I'm going to give you some quick hits and a summary of some principles that can help as we're trying to understand the Bible in its context, like good detectives really wrestling with it and understanding the nuance before we try and make um, some conclusions. Amen. Oftentimes, we take the Bible out of context. In fact, this is one of the biggest mistakes that I see um, Christians make, which is when you see a scripture that has the word you in it, it doesn't matter if it's a you or a y'all, if it's plural, if it's a you, oftentimes we just put our names in it. So something, something, you, da-da-da-da-da, I go, oh, Jim, look, he's telling me this. And so I'll give you an example. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so a quick read would just go, okay, it says you. So I'll just say Jim was washed, Jim was sanctified, Jim was justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. 
And I would tell you, because I know the context here to this, and I know what he's saying, Paul writing to the church, that sort of works to just throw my name in there or your name in there, and it, and it makes sense. Or to you, y'all, to Christians, that makes sense. First John chapter 3, it says, Little children, let us not love in word or, uh, a word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And we read this very quickly and go, children, like children of God. Well, that's me. So I should, uh, I should love uh, in word and, uh, excuse, excuse me, I should not love in word or talk only, but in deed and in truth. I should show what I, um, what I believe. I should show that I'm a child of the king, not just talk about it. That's how we interpret it sometimes. And on those, you'd go, yeah, but isn't that right? Yeah. I mean, like those kind of work. But just because you read it and you got to a conclusion that happened to be right doesn't mean you got there the right way. And it doesn't mean that the next scripture that you open up and says something, you're going to be able to get to the conclusion that it's offering, that God has for you. It would be like this. If I am, um, say I'm tutoring down at Clear Creek Rock House, great ministry. Say I'm tutoring and I've got a... uh, I've got a young man I'm helping in math, all right? They were scraping bottom of the barrel and needed someone to help this kid with math. So let's say I'm doing it. And he goes, okay, it's four plus four. How do I do this? And I say, well, how do you think you do it? And he says something like, well, four, like four sides, that's a square. So why don't I square both of the numbers and then I'll add them together and I'll multiply. There's a number in the Bible, seven, that comes up all the time. And I like to multiply. Let's multiply that conclusion by seven. My favorite number, though, is 42. So I'm going to add 42 to this. Then I'm going to turn my paper upside down so the twos become five, the fives become twos, the six becomes nines, the nines become sixes. And then uh, I'm going to add the number of times. I'm going to multiply it by the number of years old our pet gerbil is. How old is he? He's three. I'm going to multiply by three. And then I don't want, and oh, in the Bible, the number six is kind of a yucky number. Let's, I don't want any bad things. Let's subtract six from the final number. And I go, okay, well, what did you get? And he goes, hang on. Go there. Three. Okay. Four plus four is eight. I don't know if that's true. I didn't work through all the numbers and everything. (laughs) But you would not look at this kid and go, what a math genius. You would say, that was dumb luck that you ended up at the right thing. Like I would go, I was going to say that if you had four apples and Sally gave you four more apples, how many apples would you have? Like that's the process to use to be able to get there. So just because he guessed and happened to get the right answer, he still has a problem with how he goes about finding it. And it's similar to us. Even if those first couple verses, if you sort of put your name in there and go, he says you to the church, so I assume that's exactly what it means for the church today. Um, even if it works, it might not be, it might work in that instance, but it, it probably doesn't work with a lot of other things. So I'll give you a for instance. Try putting your name in where it says you. Luke chapter two. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Well, why aren't Christians just constantly walking around looking for the sign from the Lord that there's going to be a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger? Imagine just seeing a Christian walking, like, oh, he's probably reading Luke chapter 2 right now. He's looking for a manger. That's not what we do. Because we know better. We know, okay, well, he's not talking to me right here. This is talking to the shepherds about the Christ child that's been born. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.26, you is the understood subject Greet one another with a holy kiss. Anybody do that this morning? Did you walked in? Oh, you're being so disobedient. 
doesn't work. Or my favorite, Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Can you imagine putting Jim is the Christ, the son of the living God in there and thinking, I've just did good Bible study. But this is, this is honestly, this is how we do it. This is, this is bad understanding of how to read the Bible, but in our quick, fast-paced, bumper sticker culture, we just go, I'm gonna get a verse, I'm gonna just assume, I'm not gonna subtract the 2,000 years or 3,000 years ago that this thing happened and take it out of its context, what's before it, what's after it, irrelevant. I'm gonna take it and I'm gonna assume it immediately applies to me in its current form. And it does apply to us. The scriptures apply to us, but we need to understand them in its context. So if you go, to, if you go get like Bible training at seminary, they'll give you a bunch of different ways to understand the context. A couple of the big ones today I'll just share with you. You have the literary context and you have historical context. Those are two of the biggest ones. There's two main contexts we should concern ourselves with. I'll give you a quick hit. Literary context. Train up a child, Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. Train up a child the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. If you don't understand the literature that this is, which this is a proverb giving a general truth, you can think, I trained my kid in the things of the Lord, and they, they didn't stick with it. They grew up and they walked away from the faith. So either I'm a failure or I didn't do that, and so I just missed out, so that makes me a failure too. Or, well, the Bible is obviously not true. What does it mean? Train up a, ch train up a child the way he should go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. The same thing he means when, when you hear, um, I don't like paralleling this, but just to give the illustration, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. You had apples every single day, and do you still go to the doctor? Like, do you eat healthy, and you still need to eventually go to a doctor? Right, what's the point of it? Well, the point is it's, it's a general truth that he's giving. That's the kind of literature that that is. And it's saying, eat healthy. Eat healthy and you will be healthier. Have, have an apple, have some fruit, have whatever it is, and you'll be healthier. And what he's saying here is it's a command from God to say, train your children in the things that matter. Parents, you have such influence over your kids and you have the opportunity to train them in the things that matter. And if they walk away from their faith someday and you have trained, it is not something you're supposed to go, I am such a failure. That's a lie from the enemy. What we should do is say, we live in a sinful, broken world and it got the better of my child. And I am gonna pray like crazy that God calls them back to himself. That's what this means. But if we just look at it, you could look at it like we think as good Americans, oh, well, if I just train up a child, then that's my formula for success as they get older, but we have to understand it in its literary context. Now, I'm going to give a couple examples about historical context, because this one I think is, is incredibly vital. You've got looking at which testament or covenant is it in, the Old Testament? Uh, is it in the New Testament? Where is it in history? Is it the nation Israel? Is it Jesus is walking on the scene? Is it after Jesus has died and risen and we're waiting for him to come again? And so the way that I, that I like to teach this is the thing we need to figure out if we want to understand the Bible in context is very simply, we have to think, what did it mean then? What did it mean forever? And what does it mean now? What does it mean then? What does it mean? What did it mean then? What does it mean forever? And what does it mean now? Or what did it mean for them in the first century? What does it tell us forever? What is, what is the eternal truth that it's telling us about God? And then what is it saying for me today, for us as followers of Christ 
today. We are obsessed with the last one. What does this say for me? What does this mean for us? And that's why we read the Bible poorly. And I just want to show you, if you look and if you understand, if you become obsessed with what did that mean back then, what would the first readers, the first hearers have understood when this was written to them or read to them? And then what does this tell us about God, our Heavenly Father? What is, it, what is the eternal truth here? Then all of a sudden, the practical application and implication just starts to flow. And does it matter? And absolutely it does, because you'll miss out on the greatest truths of God. Now, I'm gonna show you two that are um, quintessential examples of scriptures taken out of context. And I just want you to hear um, the, the problem if we just skip and rush to us today instead of understanding in its context. Here we go. We'll start with this one. This is kind of easy pickings, I have to say. Jeremiah 29, 11 says this. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, or another translation says plans to prosper you and not for evil, or that other translation says um, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future, or a future and a hope. For the, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare or prosperity and not for evil to give you future and a hope. This is one of the scriptures that is most frequently taken out of context to mean something that is, the, in, in some cases, the exact opposite of what it's actually saying. So let me, let me just show you very simply if we look then, forever, and now. Um, <clears throat> if we jump to now, you look, and first of all, we're starting a sentence with four which doesn't make sense. Like it's saying, you should read what's right before me. Like that's what it's saying to us, which we will hear in just a second. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to, and then another translation says to prosper you. This is where the prosperity gospel comes from, that people take this and look, God is talking to us and he says the plans are to prosper us. God wants, you wanna be healthy, wealthy, and wise? That's what God wants for you as well. That is not what this passage is saying. I know the plans I have for you. Now, as Westerners especially, we think of plans, and we are, some of you are big-time planners. I'm a planner too. But when we think of plans, we think of what is my life map and my plan. So I'm, I'm a kid in high school. Okay, I got to think about where am I going to college? Like in middle school now, they have to know what do you want to be when you grow up, as if, as if they know, but there's pressure to do it. I got to know where am I going to college? What do I want to do? When we think about plans, we think of where am I going to college? Am I getting married? Am I having kids? Where do I want to live? Where am I going to work? What about physical, relational, um, financial, like all those plans? And so we read this and go, God has plans for me and they're plans to prosper me. If you read it like that, you're going to get the exact opposite of the meaning of what this text actually means. So, Go back about 2,600 years when this was written. And let me give you just a little basic context of what's happening. God had previously made promises to the nation Israel that they would prosper, that they are his covenant people. He had told Abraham, or Abram at the time, I believe, no, probably Abraham, that they were as numerous as the sand, that the, his descendants would be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. As numerous as the, he said, look up at the stars in the heavens. He said, you're going to have this, these descendants. He says, you are going to be prosperous as a nation. That was God's specific promise to Israel, that he would preserve his people, that he would prosper them, that he would give them this future. So don't think about, don't think about today. Don't think about 2022. Go back 2,600 years. And let me just read you the context of this text. Jeremiah 29. So we'll back up 10 or 11 verses here. 
These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. You have these promises made to Abraham that they're going to be a people that God is going to take care of them, that they are going to prosper. And then you fast forward a bit, and here they are in captivity under pagan, heathen, wicked Babylon. And they've been under it for a while. And they're starting to go, this doesn't seem like God is being faithful and God is keeping his promises. We'll go to verse 8. Um, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams they dream, for it's a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So not only are they in exile, they had thought, because we got the promises of God, we are bulletproof. Everything is gonna be so smooth sailing for us. And instead, Babylon comes in, takes them into captivity, and then there's these diviners among them that are starting to go, yeah, God God didn't really... He got overpowered by Babylon. They're spreading lies. That's what's happening. For thus says the Lord, here it is, verse 10. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. God had made promises to his covenant people, Israel, that he would eventually restore them. They would be his people. And all the people are around casting doubts. And so here's what we do. Just sit in that context for a minute and just imagine God's not as big as Nebuchadnezzar. God's not as big as Babylon. God promised us, but is God a liar? Because here we are in exile. Or maybe God's just not powerful enough to do something about it. Maybe we shouldn't trust him. You see all those doubts starting to set in. My, my parents passed this down to me. Their parents passed it down to them. And now I've passed it down to my kid. My kid's looking at me and asking me, is God true? Is God faithful? Is God powerful? And I'm having to look and go, yes. It's about the circumstances around them are saying one thing. And the reality is there is a powerful God that is over it all. Imagine being there. And all of a sudden, this someone goes, I got a letter. I got to read this to you. You're not going to believe this. He says, Babylon's days are numbered. It's going to be 70 years, but their days are numbered. And God wants us to know that he has not forgotten about us, that he knows the plans that he has. He remembers the plans that he has. We're not the only ones. He remembers. He is bigger than this king that is sitting on the throne right now. God is the true king of kings. And he sees us in our misery and he has not forgotten about us. That's then. What does it mean for all time? God is trustworthy and God keeps his promises no matter what comes against him. My note just says God's bigger than Babylon. Now they're, they're playing king right now, but God is the true king. That's what it teaches us for all time. What does it mean for us today? Well, if God is trustworthy, he will fulfill his promises. And so um, I'm a Christian. I am trusting the shed blood of Jesus Christ to pay for my sin. 
And that shed blood is going to continue to do that because God said it would. So if I'm having a terrible day, if I feel like I have just had an off day, week, month, or year, and I feel like I'm wandering away, God is right there and I don't have to come back, or excuse me, I don't have to like start from scratch. I'm coming back to God and going, God, I have wandered from you, but I'm still trusting in the shed blood of Jesus Christ to save me. We can trust that. That's what it means for us today. Or what about God is bigger than Babylon? Imagine this. Imagine, no snickering when I say this. Imagine if in America today, we have a party that just says that the name of their party is we are anti-God, anti-the Bible, anti-Jesus, anti-Christianity, anti-the church. That's just the title of their party. Real catchy name for a party, I know. That's the political party. And their color is not red or blue. Their color is gray, And you and I are living in a time, and one day we wake up after some elections, and the electoral map looks like this. That's not just the nation. That's all, I'm I'm talking all the local elections. That's three branches of our federal government. That's everything is taken over by that party. That's kind of like the situation that they're in, that they have Babylon reigning over them. Even in that scenario, we can go, God is bigger. That's how it applies today. Example number two. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What do we take that to mean? We like the first part. I can do all things. I remember, I've told you before, when I was young, I had a picture of a a kid uh, uh, dunking a basketball who's like four foot two, and it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But he's going to make you, like if I said, I want to dunk a basketball, I wouldn't go, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and go and think I can. I got a buddy who, um, in college, he was taking the MCAT, the big medical test, and um, to get into med schools. And he's the smartest guy. He really is like the most, he's a believer too, but he's the most intelligent person when it comes to this stuff. And um, he, this is true, he did not study for the MCAT. And it was the night before, and we are watching Simpsons reruns on VHS in our college apartment. And we're like, Mike, you got a test tomorrow, bro. And he's like, yeah, I'll be fine. We're like, have you studied? He's like, no, I like this episode. And he sat there and he watched it. And he literally is is a Christian. He said, right before I took the test, I prayed and I said, I could do all things through Christ who gives me strength. As are you relying on Christ? No, you didn't study, but God is just going to all of a sudden let you understand these things to pass the MCAT. And he's like, I don't know. He's the most laid back guy I've met too. Well, the end of the story, by the way, is he not only passed the MCAT, he did so well, they asked him to teach a course on MCAT prep (laughs) to other students. So I thought, huh, I hope he doesn't just walk in and go, hey, just claim this verse and then, you know, you'll pass. Don't go watch The Simpsons and then assume that'll, that'll work. What do we do? When we look at this verse, we, we tend to just go, I can do all things. I got this sent to me this week, a really nice uh, mug, it's, or a picture of it anyway. It said, uh, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. If you're going to rip things out of context, you can make the Bible mean whatever you want it to mean. And let me show you what that means in its context to them. Then we'll see what it means forever, and then we'll see what it means for us today. Philippians 4, 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. It's Philippians, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. 
Paul's letter to the Philippians. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And then he's going to tell them how he learned to be content no matter the circumstances. He says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty, facing hunger, facing abundance, facing need. Here it is. I can do all things through Christ, through him who strengthens me. The answer that he's giving is not, feel free, if you can't sing a lick, feel free to go, I'm going to try out for the school play and just go, I can do all things, and then go and sing awful and think you're going to get it. That, that's, not, that's not what this is talking about. What it is talking about, so then they would have understood, Paul, you have gone through the ringer. How did you do it? I did it through Christ. Christ is the one that was my strength, not my circumstances. Forever, we would say, God is enough. He is the one to get us through the highs and lows. And then we come to today and we start to go, okay, when things are bad, he's enough. And when things are good, he is even better. So Christians, we don't have to live our lives addicted to the euphoria of finding the next high in the next good circumstance. We have Christ. That's what this is saying. What did it mean then? What does it mean forever? And what does it mean now? All right, we're going to try something here. Tracy, I'll invite you up. And can I ask you to stand for just a moment, please, congregation? And don't get excited because we have several more minutes that I'm going to do something here. I want to take one text in particular, and I want to just show you this process very, very clearly. My hope is twofold. One is we get to the end of this and you go, well, that looks easy now that you do it. Yes, you can do this. And the second thing is this. When God's people arm themselves with the word of God, the sword of the spirit, that's how we go into battle. That makes hell shake. So that's what we want to do. I want to walk you through this next process, but first let's hear the word of the Lord. From Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Please be seated. You heard that Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to take a second and figure out what did it mean to them? What is the context? Well, Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, and you see this by going back and looking at any heading. It's going to tell you Sermon on the Mount. And he's there gathered with some people who are religious, they're Jews, they're following him, they're, and there's some that are irreligious, that don't know him. And in that context, he says to them, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, a footnote in your Bible is going to tell you what they would have understood is it says, you've heard it was said, different from it is written, meaning someone's saying this. The part of, the, the part of this that's in the Old Testament is you shall love your neighbor. 
And then some scribe, some Pharisee along the way had started teaching, well, if we're supposed to love our neighbor, that must mean just love our neighbor. And so there was a common teaching of the day that said, um, love your neighbor and it's okay if you wanna hate your enemy. And so Jesus is gonna give the exact opposite of that. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And then they have some cultural narrative that Jesus is about to correct. It says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Just stay in that first century. Jesus talking to people that they think I can love the lovable and I don't have to love the people that aren't so lovable. I don't have to love the people that persecute me, like Rome in that day. And Jesus says, uh, love them and pray for them. And if I'm just sitting in that moment, I'm wondering if some people just went, ugh, Rome is killing us. You obviously hadn't met uh, you know, Bill over here, Jesus, or maybe you'd put an asterisk and say, except for Bill. Like, I'm wondering if in that day they're going, whoa, this is taking a narrative that we have and turning it on its head. And he's trying to tell them that the culture ain't right on this. Pray for them. Do something super, pray that God does a supernatural work in their life. You're going to love them and pray for them with the goal being they're not enemies, that they would come back, that they would come to God is what he's saying to them in the first century. Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, or so that you can demonstrate to everybody that you belong to God. And he's gonna talk about the similarities between the just and the unjust. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And then he's gonna say, you guys are acting just like the people that you don't like. Look at this. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? He says, that's easy. Anybody can do that. The people that you would consider tax collectors, the biggest enemies of the day, the, the dirtiest, the filthiest, the least righteous people, if you love who you love, you have made your standard them and you're justifying it. Stay in the first century. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Come on, Jesus, we're basically, I mean, we're better than, we're better than a lot of people. Like, I'm nice, and he's not, and she's not. I'm, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm a nice guy. First century, what did it mean back then? Surely, Jesus, I'm hearing this, and you don't mean that if someone is rude to my child, I have to pray for them? I have to demonstrate love towards them? And Jesus is saying, yes. Your standard is not the world you people in the first century. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So back then, you've got an irreligious person going, well, you can be nice and love each other. And that's what he's, he's talking about with the tax collectors. Um, and then, uh, but hating your enemy, that's no big deal. And so the followers of God were also going, yeah, we, we, should, we should love the nice people, love the people that believe the same way that we do. But it's okay if we hate the people that think differently, hate the people that do mean, ugly things to us. Like that's what they're thinking back in that day. And Jesus is responding and he says, let me be very clear. They are made by God. It says he makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust. The world says to hate these people and you do two things for them. You love them and you pray for them. 
That's what Jesus calls his first century followers to do. You are countercultural in what you do, demonstrating you belong to a different kingdom. And if you do something else, you are not acting like a follower of God. Your standard is not to be kind of the best or nicest of the outsiders, of people who don't know uh, God, but God himself is your standard. That's what it meant. So what do we take all time from that? God is the creator. God is holy. God is our standard. God sees the good and bad, and he expects obedience from those who follow him. He is the rightful judge over everybody, over everybody who's ever lived in the world that he created. And God's people take our cues from how God would treat people, not how the worst among us treats people, not how our culture does, not how we feel justified in treating other people. We pray for them, love them. That's what God is commanding all his followers of all time to do, to pray for them, to love them, that they might change and that they might know this God that created them. So where does this come down for us? I think part of the reason, for me personally, I I don't like praying for my enemies and loving my enemies because I secretly want bad things to happen. Because if I don't make them pay a price, then they'll never pay a price. That's not the teaching of the Bible. God's got this. God sees and God knows. There's no such thing as getting away with it. I can't improve on the justice and punishment of God. If somebody um, is on a collision course with God and his perfection and holiness, and I know that judgment is coming, it is not loving for me to applaud their rebellion, but to help them turn and repent and know the living God. That's what we take from this. And then how do we do this? Now, I'm ironically going to pull a scripture a little bit out of context to do this, but no judgment. I'm going to back up, actually, and read a little bit. What is the fuel for doing this? Poor guys at the Bible study this week. I just started ranting about this when this hit me. How do we do this? How do we love our enemies? Well, one is we remember something. In Romans chapter 5, Paul, writing a letter to the church in Rome, says, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Writing to the church, he's saying Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? And here it is. For if while we, Christians, were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. When we read, love your enemies, the fuel that we have to do that is to remember Christ saved us and he called us enemies. Paul says we were enemies of God. We were on the other team. We were completely unworthy and unlike him, and he came and rescued us and saved us. And so all of a sudden, when I start thinking, I am saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, that he saw me and said, you are in direct opposition to me, 
but out of my love for you, I will send my son for your good and your rescue. Wow. Now that puts it in perspective as I'm talking to my enemy. What I have is so precious to me. I want that for them. Now it's easier to go, I want to respond with love so that you might know him. I want to pray for you so that God would do a work in your heart that you might know him and walk with him. That's what it means now. Sometimes when you look at the Bible, we feel like we always have to come up with a to-do. It's good to say, how do I apply this? What do I do with it? But it might just be you hear that and you go, praise God. Yeah, I'm forgiven. And even if you don't have a a, a list of what to go do, you might go, I'm gonna see this person different. I see myself, that's, that's a good reminder. I see myself that way before God. And maybe it's just you read it and go, wow, I'm gonna worship God more as a result of encountering him in his word today. Or sometimes there's a very specific to do. And I, have, I wrote on our order of worship, I put, pray for enemies. So here's what I wanna do before we take communion together. I wanna just give you a moment and maybe God is pulling somebody to mind specifically for you that you go, oh, I know who you're talking about. Don't say it. I don't need you to elbow me and tell me who it is. I know exactly who it is. Or maybe it's somebody that maybe not right now you feel like you're an animosity with, but it could be in the future. Like when people do this, boy, I get riled up. Oh, I get so riled up. They're, they're pre-enemies. So we can pre-pray that when you're in those situations, uh, you'll respond in a godly manner and remember your salvation so you can respond to them in a Christ-like manner. So here's what I'd like to do. Before we take communion together, would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I just want to give you a moment, please don't say it out loud, but I do want you to be specific and just think, God, who are the people that I feel justified being mad at? Who's the person? Who's the the one I feel justified hating? And dare I say it, that I feel justified calling an enemy. And let's be obedient to the scripture right now. And would you pray a loving prayer for them that they might know what we know? God, we were enemies of yours. We were on the other team. We were on the other side. And through nothing of our own goodness, but only because of your long-suffering, because of your steadfast love for us, you, the perfect and holy God, reconciled us to you because of the shed blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your patience with us and our hard-headedness and hard-heartedness. And Father, now the people, the group of people that we have brought to mind, we pray lovingly for them. We pray that you turn our hearts and our minds and our eyes about how we see them, how we think about them. We pray that whenever we encounter them, We would speak your words, not our fleshly words of perhaps anger. And God, we do this because we were enemies and you brought us to you. And so we're grateful for that. And Father, as we take communion today, my hope and prayer is that we just remember the work that you have done in bringing us into fellowship with you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said, amen.